and I'd seen her um, several years before, uh, but uh, during the show, the way it was set up at Barbet's, her back was turned to me, so it was all I could hear was the sonic creation that was coming out of the piano. But uh, this time I had a chance to see her up close, and uh, the whole band was on fire. It was all original tunes, and uh, just to see my guest uh, not just have a command of the instrument, but uh, her feel and her time was so good, and she just gave me a lot of inspiration, so much so that I um, considered her, for some reason that night, uh, there was just an angelic quality to her. And so I reached out and said, hey, you know, you really healed me that night. And uh, it's been a long time coming. Carmen Staff, welcome to the Jake Feinberg Show. Thank you so much. And thank you for those kind words. I, I appreciate it. And that's well, true. Yeah. I, I, you know, I, you know, I want I want you to just talk about how talk to younger cats, especially about how you learned to get comfortable. You know, I was watching like um, this incredible clip of a uh, 1974 uh, Herbie Hancock's Headhunters band um, in Germany. And it was like basically a funk tune, but they had dropped the bar lines and at that at that point any note could be the one I mean there was no everybody was just feeling the time the right way but I I did want you to just talk to younger cats about ultimately playing through time uh I think it's one of the most beautiful parts of music and you seem to do it effortlessly now but it's much easier said than done hmm yeah yeah, that's an interesting one because time is so mysterious, you know, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. it is. I mean, I think the more, the older I get and the more music I play with people, the more I realize that that's really one of the central mysteries of jazz, especially, or improvised music in general and just music period. Um, you know, time, like time feel definitely is mysterious and you ever have that experience where you think, oh, yeah, this one musician, I think of them as having as, you know, playing pretty on top and then they're kind of they have a bouncy feel or something like that. And then you slow them down and you listen and you say, wait, no, they play completely straight. And it's just <laughs> the way the accents are that makes it feel like that or something like that. You know, it's it's sort of like it's almost like magic or something. I know. And, no, I mean, I can, it's like breathing or something, you know, it's yeah. like, go, continue. I mean, so it's mysterious. Ultimately you learn to surrender to that mystery because we're never going to really scientifically figure it out. Ultimately it's like, you want to make the music feel good, you know? Yeah, exactly. And that's something that, I mean, I've, I'm trying to keep learning more about the specifics of it and, keep investigating what musicians are doing and specifically like groups or rhythm sections that I really love how they play together. You know, I, I try to come to a better understanding intellectually of that, but honestly, when it's, when it, when I'm playing, it really just comes down to how it feels. And that's like a bodily thing, you know, that's really visceral. So to me, I'm interested in I just want to, I want something that makes me feel like a dance, even if it's not really literal, like mm -hmm. I'm not playing like a four, four groove, although that's also great and I love it, but I just want the music to have that kind of 
dance like feeling that movement in that's embodied um and you know that's kind of like sounds a little like people talk about that or whatever but I, I just mean literally like you know when you hear Errol Garner and, it, and it's like I just can't help but move but when oh, I hear god it's just bouncing it's, along yeah no it's amazing yeah, yeah that's that's what really I think has kept me really like in love with actually playing music that's a big part of it it's just like how it makes me feel and my body and how it gets me out of my head and my thoughts which sometimes I can spend a lot of my time when I'm not at the piano kind of in my head and in my thoughts I think a lot of us have that and so it's a way to get out of that and connect with another way of experiencing life I think it's so interesting you know I mean it's it's very well said I mean I to me, it's absolutely, uh, I can't imagine uh, the opportunity to be able to play with people that, you know, where the rudiments are uh, so ingrained, and then you can sort of let go of everything you know, and just be reacting to sound. Uh, you know, I, can you, like, from an early, from an early age, maybe as a young girl, or just, can you, like, to me, there's so much uh, emphasis today you know, I'm 45, but, you know, there's younger cats, you know, they've, for no, through no fault of their own, they've grown up with all this technology, so much electronic drum machines, which is actually a lot of, there's a lot of quantized rhythm. So it's not, it's very linear, very up and down, as opposed mm -hmm. to that roundness that I saw you with a picture with near Oscar Peterson statue. Uh, and so like, you know, Ed Thigpen or Philly Joe Jones or, Johnny Vidakovich or even Jimmy McBride, who I just saw. I mean, the, the rhythm is round. Yeah. It's very round. And, and and like I guess it's a twofold question. It's like, how did you learn? What was some of the early, you know, sort of experiential learning that you had that made you feel comfortable to dance in your own body? Because what I hear today in all it doesn't matter what kind of music it is, because of that quantized rhythm, a lot of music is very stiff. And it's very hard to dance to. That's that's my personal opinion. I could dance to the music you guys are playing to. I mean, I wasn't going to get up in front of everybody and dance, but it was very danceable because the music was round. And I just yeah. wanted to get comfortable to dance in your own body. Well, yeah. I mean, there are so many pieces to of the answer to that, but um, I think it's... It's yeah, it's so many different things. You mentioned about like being young. When I was first starting on piano, I was really lucky because I got to meet kind of through, I don't know if it was fate or just luck or what, but um, I wanted to study piano. And I was, I think I was six and my older brothers were taking piano lessons from a teacher who said, well, you know, we don't like to start kids really until they're seven or eight. So, you know, but I really wanted to do it. And so my parents looked around and they found this other teacher who was this Ukrainian American woman, well, Ukrainian woman who had come over. Um, actually, she moved to Texas first with wow. her two young kids, if you can imagine, not speaking any English. No, I can't really imagine moving to Texas <laughs> from Ukraine, not knowing how to speak English. Right? I mean, and then she moved to Seattle and set up this piano teaching studio there, Elisa Mashinsky. And she was my classical teacher from when I was six to to age 18 basically so I grew up studying classical piano with her and 
her way of relating to music was not only about emotions and the bodily feeling of them, but also vocal. Mm. So it was very much around, you know, singing and like, where is the lyricism of the melody, even if it's something kind of technical or it was always about finding the melodies. So I think even from that beginning of like, what is music about for me in my head, it was sort of like, okay, well, it's about melodies and it's about um, character, like the character of the music. That was a word she used. And so I think that's related actually, you know, music like song, vocal music and dance are so connected in so many cultures in the world. It's almost like it goes without saying, but I think that's part of it, that there's something about the music coming from your voice, which is your own instrument that's in your body and the connection to dance. And then the connection, of course, to the drums, which is the other instrument that is also in our body, really, in a way. Absolutely. And, yeah. And so I think, and I don't think it's a coincidence that now I find myself working with tap tap dancers. And um, occasionally I'm, I'm part of this project called Speak, which doesn't, we don't get to perform super frequently, but when we do, it's amazing. It's a collaboration with these Katak dancers oh. and Hindustani classical musicians and then tap and jazz. Oh my so God. That's like, that show is really all about this thing I'm talking about, which is just the connection between the, the dance, you know, the, the melody, the way it's all in our bodies. Um, and so, so yeah, to go back to, to kind of my background, I think that was always just a way I thought about music. And I was a kid who didn't necessarily know they were going to become a musician. I, I had a lot of other interests and I was very academically inclined in school. And I um actually even like I did a double degree program where I studied anthropology and was really seriously thinking like, maybe I'll, I'll go into this world and oh. read and write and, and think and use my brain, you know, like, <laughs> I, I kind of yeah, yeah. About, no I love it I love it yeah you know you know what I mean and so I kind of had music as this other side where I didn't necessarily put the same kinds of pressures on myself about being very intellectual about it the way I think I pressured myself in the academic world and it was sort of this relief like this other place that I could be where it was okay to just sort of be more vulnerable and just be more in my body rather than my mind and um, you know, I mean, obviously these, I'm generalizing about this dichotomy, but by the way, you, but, uh, I just want to be clear, like, this is a stream of consciousness interview. So whatever comes yeah. to your mind, you do not have to answer the question, whatever you run with, you just go, but yeah. you know what it is like, did you feel because in the, in academia, it's like, it's not about joy or, uh, learning to find your own voice. It's like, you have to keep publishing and publishing and publishing and publishing. And, publishing. and it's like, that's yeah. where the stress comes from, right? As opposed to music where you can just, if you're playing with people you love and that you trust, you can cut it loose. Maybe you hit a couple clams, but maybe that takes off into some new direction of vocabulary, you know? Yeah. And specifically in improvised music, you know, like once I started playing jazz, I loved playing classical piano, but I didn't ever see myself becoming a concert pianist or a professional classical pianist or anything. Um, partly just because I wasn't, I just didn't want to practice for eight hours, you know, that <laughs> wasn't me. But then once I started playing jazz, I realized like, oh, this is kind of what I was missing because even though I'm a pianist, which is an instrument that's often played alone, in jazz, 
I have this community around me. And I was lucky because I lived in Seattle and I got to go to these high schools, even a middle school actually, that had these amazing jazz bands, jazz programs and teachers and parents who were really supportive and um, sort of these traditions of jazz oh. education. And so I got to play in big bands from when I was, you know, like 11 years old. And so being a pianist in a big band is kind of a funny place to be, but it was, it was fun. You know, it was like, this is a community, this is us improvising together and creating and, and kind of connecting with each other through the music. Um, and so, which is as side note, part of the reason that I think this idea of cutting funding for music programs in schools is such a bad one. Oh, but, no. um, you know, I'm a living example of someone who became a, a professional musician because of that experience, I think, actually, because of going from studying classical music to then finding out about jazz and going, wow, this is so cool. And also jazz is so rich because it has the all of the anthropological things that I was interested in, everything <laughs> about culture, you know, the, the history of the movements of people, oh, yeah. whether oh. it be voluntary or not and the the what they brought with them and how people's the different people's interacted and you know all of that stuff that was really fascinating to me you can trace that actually orally in the music which is so cool and so another one of my interests um was afro-cuban music and just general you know latin america in general like learning spanish and i got really interested in a lot of different musical traditions also from Latin America. And um, after high school, I took some time to go to Cuba and spend about six months there um, trying to check out Cuban music and, and of course, taking dance lessons and taking drum conga lessons and wow. trying to integrate all of that and, and playing with musicians down there and everything. So um, what did, what know. was most inspiring about, I mean, I've done a lot of digging. I mean, it's funny because some people would call me an anthropologist as a journalist. Mm -hmm. you know the excerpts that i extract from you know i transcribe but you know that whole <clears throat> diaspora from the motherland of africa it's fascinating because obviously you know that word santeria you know mm -hmm. the spiritual drumming you know that's a that's not an african word that's a latin word you know mm -hmm. that, that it's like yeah. everything was scrubbed all the the traditional culture i mean they tried to hang on to it Congo Square is a whole nother level to it. Could you just talk to the audience about maybe an, the most inspiring thing musically that you saw traditionally down there, especially as it related to drumming? Well, you know, I got there and I had done some research on Cuban music. You know, I had kind of checked out like, um, first of all, just trying to learn how to play in clave, right? Like, so I was checking out like um, Rebecca Malone Santos's book and I think Carlos Campos's book of like 101 Montunos and things like that. And um, the movie Buena Vista Social Club had come out. And so I was kind of watching that, but yeah. it actually took me being down there for a while before I realized how important the, like the thing that I really, like if I were to do, if I could go back in time and I wanted to do it again, I would have just spent every weekend at the checking out Roomba because the Roomba <laughs> music is like that is speaking of these elements I mentioned before that's the musical thread that is the connection between the drums the dance and vocal music it's like for me I mean you know I'm leaving out harmony as a piano player it's kind of funny to be talking about these things that are sort of everything but harmony in the music um 
but maybe we can we'll get to that later. But, no, uh, but also, I mean, like, let's be clear that the, the piano is a percussive instrument, you know? Exactly. Yes. Yeah. And Go ahead. For me especially yeah. it's that's a kind of a a thread or a path on in the piano that's been really interesting to me is being a percussionist. And so yeah, so Roomba basically checking out that and trying to make the connection. I I went to Tufts the following year after going to Cuba. And when I was in Cuba, of course, I learned about Abaqua, like, you know, a little bit Absolutely. about yeah. this, this music and this particular rhythm, bell pattern, you know, that some people, I think people call it bembe, like there's different names. But um, then when I went to Tufts, I took the uh, West African drumming ensemble and learned about Agbekor, you know, so it's oh, like Abaqua, so Agbekor. Cool. Yeah, yeah, right. And so linguistically also it was interesting to say like, oh, okay. So, you know, these are like like I said before, these things are living in the music and in the languages. It's it's really amazing. And it was really inspiring for me. You know, I'm a white person coming from Seattle, and which by the way, Seattle has a huge rich jazz history and it's got a hip hop tradition. It has a lot of amazing cultural things but i wasn't necessarily fully aware of all of that at the time you know of I was course not i mean why would you know come on we can't be that hip yeah. You know? yeah but so you know to be this american person going down there and and suddenly just be able to see like wow this is this is a really amazing learning to try to understand a little bit more about as someone who doesn't have this ancestry but i live in you know i'm i'm in this country of the united states of america which the jazz ja the story of jazz is so parallel to this one and actually it's the same same story in a lot of ways mm -hmm. right because mm -hmm. so many people were had gone through cuba or parts of the caribbean and then made their way or were were brought to you know what is north right. america right and um so, you know, so this was, it was really important for me to learn about this. And as someone who was interested in jazz and like trying to understand the connections between all of these things, I think it made a real impact. And so then I was saying, I, so I went to Tufts and was learning about Agbekor and trying to make that connection. I was also studying with Danilo Perez, who is an amazing mm. pianist and has been a real mentor, um, really important person for me in my life and um you know getting even more into like well how does this relate how do these triplets that we're hearing here in this afro-cuban tradition how do they relate to elvin jones or you know how does this um clave pattern relate to errol garner's left hand when he's playing <laughs> those dotted corners you know what I i'm did. talking about yeah so so it's all connected and and it's a it's a tradition that is really expansive and has incorporated a lot of different you know kind of accents and developments and and people and i always felt very welcomed in cuba i felt like people said to me well you know you actually broke your own country's laws to come here and learn from us <laughs> so hopefully i won't get in trouble for saying that but you know that was a long time ago but um but at the time you know i had to go through mexico and, and make my way there and basically say you know look this is this is music this is humanity this is culture this is something that is you know this is how we're all connected like I don't I'm not gonna deal with this the whole political side of it and all of that like 
can I learn this? Can I come here and like study this from you as as a human being who's a musician and you know like what 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 will happen if I just come here and live here and and people were so welcoming. I mean wow. nobody. I think one person said like, oh, I don't like you because you're American. But for the most part, everybody said, we get it. We know it's your government. It's the, you know, these they're, the governments, as we're seeing right now, you know, governments do one thing and political leaders do one thing. And then the, the actual human beings who are just like the regular people, <laughs> the rest of us folks are, are, you know, in another place a lot of the time. That's a, that's a profound statement you just made. Uh, the, 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 about going the other way. I mean, you know, Carmen, it's like, he, I've just interviewed, you know, Bill Summers talks about uh, Pablo Landrum uh, playing spiritual drumming ceremonies in parks in Harlem and Mongo Santa Maria would do that. And, uh, you know, Tasiji Munoz, my my spiritual teacher, he, he started playing with the Puerto Ricans, playing five conga drums Rhythm was so entrenched in the, it was so ridiculously involved in the culture before we were really formative or even conceived, so to speak. Yes, yes. And, and you know, so much of my show is about rhythm now. Rhythm is love and it's very much healing for me. And I just wonder, like, uh, can you describe, like, I guess you primarily spend most of your time in New York, correct me if I'm wrong, but I just would love you to talk about like what is the rhythm of urban america now i live in tucson but you know that visceral connection to what i'm sure you know this word uh, descarga you know the the spiritual discharge uh, breaking open of the skull that is all i care about and people look at me askance now they want music especially jazz music made for pacification they don't Mm -hmm. want people having out-of-body experiences it's like that can you just talk about if you and, and not that it's not that your music is like this, but that there's been this shift in order to survive, jazz has become more classicalized, especially in this in this century. Well, it's interesting because I've been just having some conversations with people about that. I'm at I'm in Miami right now, actually. While oh, we're speaking. Wow. Wow. That's fantastic. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um it's been great. I came down here, uh, the program Wolfson at Miami Day College uh, has a program where they bring jazz musicians wow. to do these concerts and master classes. And so, so I'm down here and, and I've had a chance to talk to some of the, you know, some of my friends who are musicians down here. And, and it's just really interesting because a lot of people seem to be seeing a similar thing right now, which is that and, you know, part of this probably has to do with the pandemic, I'm sure, but definitely even before that, that we're spending so much time online and so much of our so-called content is being disseminated on social media, which has certain incentives or sure. certain things that it incentivizes, I should say. So when you have the idea that you need to make something that will catch people's attention really quickly and oh. be a very short clip and also be like sound okay on their phone right like that's i mean that's directing what the music the directions that the music is taking because that's what people are seeing and then they're saying oh well so this must be what what we're doing now like how we make music and and you know being able to make music long distance like during the pandemic like collaborating with people 
over Zoom and all of that stuff was great. It's It's been a great thing to be able to do that. But on the other hand, the being in the same room, breathing the same air as other people, I think that's so crucial for, you were saying out of body experience, but even just in our body in body yeah absolutely got to be we got to play in before body. you can go out yeah i did exactly we got to get into our bodies like i was saying before about that music was a way that i was getting in my body and it's just for a variety of reasons that's just become something that it's feels like it's just harder to do now and it's and it's there's less of it and you know the way that algorithms work mm -hmm. is dictating how people think about wanting to make money and how they're going to, you know, get notoriety as musicians and all of those things that of course it's good to have, you know, yeah, we want to get more attention so that we can do more things and all of that. But the basic thing of like, why are we doing this? Like you said, for healing and for connecting, I like to think about communion a lot. Like I don't so go to moves. church and take communion, but for me, this is a, it's like a form of communion. So that I can't do from watching a video on my phone, you know, it just doesn't, it just doesn't work. You well, I mean, to... even, even the clip, I, I mean, to me, it's also like, what are your ears? How big are your ears? People are just so, uh, part of it, I just think at the, at, at a, at a macro level, um, people don't want, I mean, certain powers of be don't necessarily want people to feel the music they 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 just yeah. they want it for oh that's good music for background noise i mean the amount of touring bands and i'm not necessarily talking about jazz at all but just the amount of bands that are making decent bread by touring and road dogging that are playing the same show every night in a formula trip as opposed to those like that are going out to play original spiritual burning music is insane yeah. i mean they, and and at one time in art when especially when jazz was a popular music in this country that was not the case those cats were going out and they i mean herbie hancock and his m1 dc band was playing at, at the london house while people were trying to have dinner you know and it was really startling for people because they'd open the show with a 20-minute percussion jam you know and so it's like it's part of it's like an like a excuse my language like a sort of a effort attitude where you're just going to do i mean where you just are like, you know what? This is what I feel. This is how I feel. I'm going to present it this way. And if the bean counters don't like it, I'll still be able to sleep well at night. You know, I mean, in terms of your own projects, not that you want to alienate anybody, but do you feel more and more that you're taking ownership of doing stuff that, you, that makes you, that, that matters, that feels good to you as opposed to what all the noise or how to, because the, the word I'm looking for, we're just, we're, it's, all there it's just we're being forced to conform conformity mm. in music and it's like there's a homogenization of sound because of that and i just yeah. don't hear that in you i've never the times i've heard you play live it's like the most burning you it's just you and it's just it just comes through you and i just i wonder if that's something that um well just talk to people about how to hang up their hang-ups and and how you've learned to to get to that point where you know you beg borrow and steal from your mentors or, or your your heroes but but then it's just you you know i mean i heard you playing like that one clip i put up it was like there was like 
you were throwing in like conga percussion within the it was like very percussive and very rhythmic and just it just was beautiful and it wasn't you weren't playing a formula trip and i just would love you to talk to cats who are burned out or struggling because they're playing the same song all the time and they're afraid to push themselves out of their comfort zone what would be your advice to them well you know maybe i'll repeat something that my mentor speaking of mentors yeah. Yeah. daniel perez told me which you know it's i've been thinking about this ever since and he i think he told me this probably when i was you know in college so 20 years ago now something like that uh, maybe a little less but he said something like play what you don't like about yourself hmm. play the thing about yourself that you're ashamed of and I've been trying to understand that you know ever since and I think a big part of it is that when you like the parts of ourselves that we try to hide are the parts that make us who we are they are the parts of us and that's also the part of us that is vulnerable that when you actually expose it when you say you know what i'm gonna just this is just me i'm just gonna do this and it's me then that allows other people to hear that and say oh it's okay it's okay or even exactly like, no you're nailing it continue please well, I was just going to say one time when I was teaching at Berkeley, I remember a student coming in and saying, hey, I was having trouble thinking about scale, chord scales. And I'm wondering what note you're allowed to play on like a C7 altered dominant chord. Um, and I said, well, hold, hold on. Um, you can, you're allowed to play any note on any chord. And they said, you really think that? And I said, yeah. I mean, sure, there's theory and everything, but yeah, of course you're allowed to do anything it's all depending on you know whatever you hear and feel and they said it must be so freeing to think that way oh that's <laughs> it that's it gosh. but you can you can think that way and it's just another way of looking at it that i found really helpful is to think of it as just expanding your toolbox that so if you learn how to play let's say there's a very um kind of you could say a very formulaic way that you could think about playing, let's say like diminished scales over a certain kind of dominant chord sound, you know, and it's a great idea to do the work to really try to get inside of that and understand it. And then that way you have that as your tool, as another tool that might be the tool that comes to you right in the moment where it's like, this is exactly what I'm hearing. And this is the sound. And then you can play that sound rather than like, I learned that you can play a diminished scale over a dominant chord. So when I see a dominant chord next time, when I go to my gig on Friday, I'm going to make sure that I put that diminished chord in there or diminished scale, whatever, you know, it's like, rather than seeing it as like, I need to do this because it's the directive that, or because I heard, you know, bird do it. And so therefore I should do it so that I can be cool too. Instead of that, it's like, I'm going to investigate this because it's really neat. Like, first of all, it's really interesting and cool. And then maybe also it'll be something that I end up hearing when it feels like the moment to use that sound. Just like you might use a vocabulary word in the moment because it really does feel like the exact right word to communicate whatever it is that you want to say. So, you know, yeah. you know I think it, it, it's, <sighs> Carmen Staff's just on fire right now. It's just such an honor to, to hear her articulate this stuff. Um, 
the you know i've i've interviewed billy childs you know about this uh schofield vinnie collier all these guys i mean some of those guys didn't even finish berkeley there was so much work on the road they didn't even finish i mean it was just it, a professional musician it was seen as music was seen as a viable profession uh very strongly at a certain period of time and and you know you you've dedicated yourself to a life of music i just wonder if you feel like someone said this to me that grading g-r-d-i-n-g is grating g-r-a-t-i-n-g you know it's like you're talking about these concepts about put a chord on it you know any note it, there, are, there are no wrong notes i mean to me you can't even grade that stuff if somebody naturally knows how to play that um, that in itself is, you know, a, a demonstration of of big ears. I just wonder about the grading in in music school, and if you feel like, you know, it's something that needs to be changed. Insofar as there's just so much pressure to work towards a grade, as opposed to all the other things like ear training. And not that there is an ear training, but like uh, finding your own voice, and and some of that has to do with just uh the limited amount of of live bandstand opportunities that has even happened since we gra- i mean i i graduated in 2000 so i just wonder about like is grading a grading thing for students today especially now that we're saturated in visual information and so much of it is mediocre i'm just you know what it is all i care about on my show is and you're somebody who's like a conduit for this is making sure that musicians are seen music is seen as a viable profession and not a musician's gift to the world and then two getting back to a point when you know you can tell who somebody is because everybody has their own individual sound and maybe i'm pollyannish but i just mm-hmm. want to get you can riff on that any way you want well i mean yeah it makes me think about a lot of different things one of them is that in a time like right now, these questions, I mean, it's, it's simultaneously doesn't feel important. And it also feels like the most important thing. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Because in a way it's sort of like, ah, yeah, I mean, okay. It's just music. Like, first of all, we're just talking about sound waves, you know, (laughs) that are going to hit our ears and be processed by our brains. (laughs) You know what I mean? It's not that important. On the other hand, Going it's completely back to the only thing that matters. Yes, exactly. And so, or what matters is, yeah, is being being human, you know, finding ways so, to be I want to just, I want to stop. You know why it matters? Because it's nonverbal communication. And we're in this yeah. time where we can't agree on anything verbally. Mm-hmm. It's all litigious. It's all word salads. And music, when it's right, is the greatest nonverbal communication around. That's why it's the most important thing. In fact, that's what I believe. I mean, I just, I think that rhythm will is the only thing that can save us. Continue, please. I didn't mean to cut you off. I think you're right. Yeah, Yeah. well, exactly. And it's, and it's, um, you know, it's that thing of, if we could say it in words, we wouldn't need music. People say, talk about your music, explain it. It's like, well, you you can't really, because that's the whole reason it exists. You know, it's to get to those places that, we don't say in words as much as I love words, of course, you know. Absolutely, but it's it, there's nothing better than like the the incredible silence that falls over a crowd after an insanely burning piece of music, and 
everybody can knows that nothing need nothing needs to be said yeah it's just there it was real it was there yeah yeah and and we need that we need that connection as humans and but in so a time when there's so much noise related to oh it's just music how does right how do we center it so that or how do you what's the best way to go about like uh maybe there is no right there's no right or wrong answer but you know people really look at me like i have three heads like because I, I I really am I'm like a Sufi in a lot of ways. Like you were talking about Hindustani music combining with tap. I mean, McLaughlin was going. Paul Motion was going to Sufi dances in the in the early '70s. That was everywhere. It was mm -hmm. everywhere in New York. Like, and that stuff is being tamped down. And mm -hmm. and I just want more cats to get hip to it. So how do we? I mean, is it just the idea of being able to sit in the neighborhood church to see Carmen Staff play? I mean, is that we can get closer to the truth through that, or are there other mm -hmm. ways to get closer to the nonverbal healing opportunities for, for the masses? I think one piece of it that's important to think about or talk about is that there are, you know, there are folk traditions of music where there isn't the separation that says, okay, you're the performer, you're going to go on a stage and play, and then the other people are the audience. You know, there, right. there are these different traditions that I think every culture has had some form of tradition that's participatory where the whole community is involved. And another kind of um, area of music that I've been involved in and interested in is klezmer music. And so oh. in klezmer music, I've gotten a chance to, you know, go to a few places to study with people and play with bands and things. And and one thing that I love about that so much is that it still is that kind of music in a way. There, there's a place where, you know, people who are just getting together will play music, even if they're not professionals, they'll dance, they'll, you know, there's there are folk music scenes like this in, in so many places with so many different traditions. And I think as someone who thinks of themselves as a, you know, a so-called jazz musician, it's been really important for me to participate in a tradition like that as and you know in a way also i'm not jewish so that's also me coming to a tradition and saying hey can i can i get in on the you know can i learn a little bit about this and mm. learn a little bit of the dance steps and you know like is that all right and everyone says yes of course come on in you know and um and it's just so much fun and the music and it's so deep and there's so much again so much history i mean you know so i think what you're asking about students and grading and all of that and I, yeah. I think it's like it would be so sad if a student's only experience of music was feeling like they had to perform and get a good grade and then get a good grade so to speak in the in the form of an athlete. well that's what but you know what it is with my daughters like it's not they're not musicians but I just feel like they're not they, they all the enjoyment is is is, is lost because mm -hmm. you're focused squarely on some sort of quantifiable thing when in fact it's right. on and I and I don't know if you were a professor I mean I don't I just also I you know it's so hard because you know you talk to Billy Childs who's very articulate brilliant player and he starts kind of railing on the current academic situation but then you transcribe something like that and he doesn't want it to go up publicly because he doesn't want to bite the hand that feeds him, you know because he's he's get you know he, I mean it's a gig you know and so it's like, and, and that's totally antithetical to the way his generation learned 
the music. He was on the he was on tour with J.J. Johnson, you know, when he was barely an adult. Well, you know, he, these are things like that keep me up at night, you know. But I think there actually is a way to yeah, tell me the academic approach because I actually got to study with Billy Childs a little bit when oh, I was wow. at the Monk Institute, which is now the Herbie Hancock Institute, and um, the Monk Institute was actually started as in uh, you know during this and saying, well, you know, Monk is part of a lineage of people who learned and taught each other through the oral tradition and the oral tradition. And right. they they would get together in the living room and sit, you know, he would go to over to Mary Lou Williams's house and she would say, well, check out what happens if you do these dominant chords, like moving in half steps like this, you can hear that in her music. And then you hear it in Monk, it's very clear. Hmm. I mean, even some of her, you know, like the bridge to rhythm and ing is, <laughs> was, or, Absolutely. you know, things like that, where it's like, oh yeah, Mary Lou Williams. But, but so, and then Monk was, mentoring other people and, and teaching them his music and and so anyway the monk institute is, is an example of a program that is trying to teach or allow this music to be taught and developed in that way um another one is like the global jazz institute at berkeley like i think there are really attempts being made in really good faith and really good people doing a really good job of trying to um teach in a way that is more uh you know about these human things and less about grading and doing things by numbers and but i just wanted to go back to just absolutely absolutely yeah please i just want to repeat a point that i heard someone else say that you know i've heard many other people say this but i think it's relevant which is just that you know things that are easily quantized or quantified are easier to grade and easier to teach. And because we have this institutional system in our academic world, even you know to the point of like, think about standardized testing for kids and no child left behind and the way that you get more, you know, remember that where it was like, oh, this will be a good idea. We'll give less money to the schools that have the low test scores. Like how would that work? But anyway, I'm, that's, so, you know. <laughs> no, I'm but, with you hundred yeah, percent, yeah. But you know, like, it's it's easier if you focus on things it just makes it easier like from a bureaucracy standpoint if you focus on things that are easy to grade and that are more objective rather than more subjective so it's like of course you know you can say okay i want to hear all your bebop scales or play me you know all of your like you're this year so you should play drop two voicings okay so do that you know it's like and i, I understand of course and it's good to have systems in place also. Like once we figure out something works and this is a good thing for people to know how to do, then it's like learning grammar or something. It's like, absolutely. yeah. No, absolutely. There's some things that uh, if it plays out and it's successful, then you, you keep it, but if you can't, yeah. this, it's this, can you talk about an example from the Global Institute or the Monk Institute as best you can about how they're trying to pass this music along in the quote-unquote oral tradition of of Mary Lou and Monk and guys like I could be you know Tommy Flanagan or Ray Bryan or you know as opposed to the 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 western uh curriculum and the, the academic grading I mean is there an example of the way you can talk about how they're they're trying to uh get that those points across well I think you know my biggest feeling about those places well first of all it's that they're bringing masters they're bringing master musicians Absolutely. 
Absolutely. So, you know, it's like, I mean, this was, I almost feel like it's like an embarrassment of riches for me to describe what going to the Monk Institute was like. I mean, it was just, I, I, I can't even believe how lucky I was to do that. I mean, getting to be in a place where from week to week, we would have, you know, Bob Hurst came one week and then the next week was John Patitucci. And then the week after that was, you know, Herbie Hancock was there. for us and it was just like one after another of, the, of people <laughs> like that so it it's almost like it's almost like too much you know for but us don't to, you, uh, let me ask you a question when you when, get, you know, when like after you get over that excitement i mean you realize right that they all understand that this is the way the music is going to live on too right i mean that's exactly. exactly yeah and and so then the other piece of it was just the amount of playing we did. The fact right. that not sitting in a classroom, although we did that too, you know, if we, most of us were taking just like master's classes, you know, where we were just in a classroom at desks, listening to stuff and taking tests. And so I got my academic fix in as well, <laughs> but, but just the sheer amount of playing that we were doing, I think that's the other piece of it because now there just aren't the opportunities like you were saying before where you have billy childs or people from that generation who really were still able to be out on the road playing night after night with their elders you know who they were learning from and that's just not really available in the same way now that those types of opportunities um and so or there are very few of them right. and so these programs are also just trying to get us just literally to have that experience of like what would it be like if we just played together every single day for hours in this band you know it, it's sort of like being on the bandstand every night just in a different at a different time of day but um well, so yeah, that's that, yeah i mean this you know um if you first of all do you, insofar as singing for your supper, I mean, you know, you talked about Seattle before, uh, you know, ironically enough, my dear brother, late, the late great Larry Coriel was from Texas originally, but then he uh, set up shop in Seattle and, you know, David Friesen was from there and there are just so many insane people, Quincy Jones, uh, I think Ray Charles, I mean, just the list goes on and on and on. Mm -hmm. um, Jimmy Hendrix. A, Hendrix, I mean, come on, it's a bastion of music, but um, how does Carmen staff, how many different things do you have to do? That's the other part of it, is just like a creator like yourself or anyone who's just like inventive and is not just put in the time, but like has just, it's just, that's their purpose in life is to like just communicate and 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 never repeat ideas and be curious and especially, you know, through your apparatus. Um, but now it's like, I mean, I look at my road dog friends. I mean, that's why I was in on the East Coast to see my friends in my band Mapache. And it's like, this is a gifted, these, these are gifted musicians. And yet they have to sell their own merch. They have no roadies. They're mm -hmm. in a sprinter van. I mean, it's like criminal stuff. It's, it's, it, and they're doing it because they don't know anything else. They don't know any, they don't know any other way. I mean, they, it, life, music is a matter of life and death. Like, I think Reggie Workman said that, you know, mm -hmm. and it's like, but so you have to wear all these different hats, you have a promotion and stuff that you're not, you, and it takes away from the creative process. So 
I just wonder, you seem to have be able to juggle quite a few different things. And I wonder how many different things you do currently to sing for your supper. Uh, well, yeah, it's definitely the case that we musicians or I guess band leaders are expected to do a lot more things now, like promote ourselves, promote our gigs and things that, you know, it's like, could you imagine a club telling Thelonious Monk, like, hey, could you, would you mind asking all of your friends if they'll come to the gig? Exactly. Yeah, yo, Thelonious, bring some of your records with you and sell them at the gig, you know? <laughs> like, <laughs> like, oh, would you mind, like, could you make a flyer? Could you make a poster for us? Like, no, not to diss any of these venues, because that's the other thing is that, like, the people running these venues are just in the trenches as much as we Absolutely. are Absolutely. the time now. So it's, you know, it's not that. It's a more of a systemic thing. And earlier we were going down the you know talking about the kind of um standardization of of study and education and this all is related to just the capitalism you know the capitalist system oh, that we've been being counters, being counters. So, yeah that's exactly. insane. so that's part of this too is like art like being an artist and trying to do the things we were talking about before about getting in our bodies and slowing down and being together and being human with each other that's like that doesn't that's just a different it, like it's from a different universe than capitalism you know mm -hmm. what i mean like they're just not they aren't things that can be talked about in the same kind of conversation you know they're categorically different types absolutely of discussions and so of course we all but we do live in a capitalist system so we all have to find our way to negotiate that and I don't think there's a wrong way. This is again something I've been talking to a lot about with you know with people um down here and just in general we're always talking. This is the eternal conversation now is like well, you know, what what are we going to do and anyone trying to figure out a way to make it work whether it's, you know, whatever you can do. It's like you okay, I play in a wedding band and I do weddings on the weekends and then I I'm doing my record, I'm writing my music or I'm teaching at a school or I'm, you know, whatever it is, it's like, we just do whatever we need to do um, to be able to continue doing the important thing. The thing that is like a calling or a spiritual um, act for us, which is the music, you know, we try to anyway, but I mean, that's all well and good, but it's like, okay, so then what, <laughs> what are we going to do? And, you know, for me, I'm lucky because I play piano. And so I, can just be a side person in a lot of different settings. Um, I studied classical music and I can read pretty well from that. So I'm able to play music that requires a lot of reading. Um, and then I also love playing improvised music and playing, you know, music that is dance music. And like, I was obsessed with the Beatles as a kid. And so, you know what I mean? Like there's, I can be happy in a lot of musical situations. And I think that's something that served me well because that way I can be excited about a lot of different ways to, that I could potentially be like paying the bills, you know? Absolutely. Um, well, you're also, it helps that you're really brilliant too. I mean, it's like, I mean, you know, Carmen, I, I just, I wanted to ask you this question a lot. One of the, one of the L's, I have four, four L's leadership, love life and lineage and and i wanted to ask you um about if you could just talk um as candidly as you can about um you know i 
I saw you that night uh, last weekend, and you know, I, I I realized that you know COVID had a, a huge impact on you um, physically, and you know, I know it was a very real thing. And I, you know, I don't understand everybody's all hyped up about whether that you know what anti-vax this that. It's like my best friend who was ten years older than me and healthier than anybody was just chopped down by it, and so. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry. I, you know, yeah, and it still sits, you know, and I, and I just, I wanted to know if you, in, in the darkest times, how, if you can, you know, they always talk about, you'll, you'll never remember what somebody said, but you'll remember how they made you feel. And again, that was a very painful thing, but how have you tried to remind yourself coming out, not that we're completely out of it but the fact that we are in some different phase now to remember how the fragility of life and also, yeah. How has your musical perspective changed coming out of the fact that you were uh, like many people affected by this virus? That's such a good question. Um, You know, well, the reason that I was so affected by it or that it, it is something I've taken so seriously is that I had cancer um, when I, right after graduating from college, actually while I was in college, my last year of college, I had cancer, but didn't get diagnosed until basically like the week after graduation. And so um, that was a, a fun way to start off the oh, <laughs> post, post-graduate life. But um, yeah, I, I had cancer and I had to have a bone marrow transplant for it and, um, you know, radiation um, a lot of chemo. And so that has, that's something that has affected my life ever since, you know, there are long-term side effects, but like gradually, you know, knock on wood, I, I was very lucky. I was able to be in remission after, you know, having radiation and the transplant. And so gradually it became something that I kind of, it was, you know, they say the new normal. So I didn't have to think about it all the time. Of course, there were things like certain medications that I have to take and doctors that I have to see and all of that, that, that I was used to, but didn't necessarily need to tell everybody about, or you weren't, all, yeah, it wasn't, you weren't obsessing or hung up about it. Yeah. Yeah. Much. And yeah, it was yeah. like, I mean, but you know, it did take me a long time to get to that point. I went I through yes. psychologically about different phases of, you know, cause it's really grief. It's moving on from this illness, but also grieving the, mm. the ways that my, sort of early career post graduating from school, like didn't get to develop as it could have, and not just career, but you know, they say that when you graduate from college, that's when you really kind of try to find yourself, you know, and like- Yeah, actually I had, I totally broke down. Like I didn't have, God, uh, you know, I, I would never wish cancer on I mean, but I literally had psychological meltdowns like my junior year of college, like I, mm-hmm. where it was like, I know nothing and I'm supposed to yeah. supposedly know everything. Yeah. Sorry, go ahead, yeah. Well, so exactly. And so, but then when you are hit with something like cancer, it's like, I just had to spend, you know, two years basically just trying to stay alive, like, you know, having the transplant and doing all that and learning a lot more about medicine than (laughs) I thought that I was going to need to know. Um, And then after that, but you know, when you're going through it, at least for me, when I was going through it, people would say, oh, you're so strong, you're battling. And, you know, it's like, no, you know, I, I'm just doing what I have to do like I'm 24 I'm not gonna 
like what I'm obviously I'm going to take the treatment. You know what I mean? Like I was, I didn't think of myself as strong. I just thought like, I'm just in a hard situation and I'm just holding on and trying yeah, to, you're trying to survive. You're just trying to survive. Exactly. And then, and then of course I went through this phase where, because remember there's all of the toxic positivity. So there's the like, well, the <laughs> So yeah, like, no, I did. Oh, I did. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So then there were all of these um, books that were saying that, you know, I caused my own cancer because I was too stressed out and I was being held in my cells and all of this. And that's not helpful, first of all, to like oh, that philosophy is not yeah. helpful to cancer patients, just FYI to everybody. But um, yeah. And so then there was a time when I had to kind of say, yeah, well, you know, it was sort of a blessing in disguise, or it wasn't a blessing in disguise, but it was. But I learned lessons and I became much more interested in spirituality and I had a sense of my own mortality. So then I started meditating and getting on this path of investigating other things and which is all true and it's well and good and everything. But eventually the other shoe does have to drop and you do have to process the anger and the pain and the loss and the fear and the, you know, the injustice if you feel like the world was supposed to be just and then you find out that that it's not you're right 100 <laughs> you know? and so this is what i i hate to sort of be like a debbie downer i don't want to go around telling people like being no, the, I, no you know what it is this is like the cold hard light of day this yeah. is what I love. this is your 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 jazzer because this is <laughs> this is the truth you're not white the truth yeah, exactly. And I, and I really do, you know, I don't consider myself like a Buddhist or anything, but from the, what I have the most, the, the kind of practice that has made the most sense to me has been a practice of trying to accept what is reality, accept reality. And so that's something with COVID that has been really interesting because I've been trying to say, you know, obviously I don't go around shouting this in the street, but, but when I'm in conversations like this with people who really, it sounds like want to hear what I actually think, you know, I really say like, we're going to have to deal with this. Like we're going to need to heal psychologically from this. Like this is a massive collective trauma that we're going through and not just. You're absolutely right. You're absolutely, I mean, and, and yeah, but, and then we, and, and we live in an instantaneous time. So people just want to turn the corner, but we're exactly. on so many levels. There's just, so how do I, so let me ask you just, um, where do you do you because there's so much do you feel like part of your mission i don't want to say that like that's the wrong word but i feel like you're so articulate that how how do you even when we're so polarized on every issue including this one how do you try to get it in and what, what is the most important thing that you think will heal us as as a culture as a human as a nation so to speak just around this issue what do you think are the tenets that you would try to get across to people who are just incensed about and just feel like you know it's just ridiculous i mean that first strain of covid was so i mean it was in the country before but i mean people just want to pretend and forget what that was like yeah and that was real. Of course, we want to forget. And uh, we don't want to think that we're still dealing with potential right. potential long-term consequences, which, you know, that's another whole story is talking about long COVID. And, and for me, I'm someone who 
I've already had enough damage to my organs and to my, you know, my, my body has been through a lot with the cancer and everything. I'm, I, I remember having chemo brain. Like I do not want to deal with more oh. brain damage from oh. COVID. You know? So, and, and that's another thing, you know, I don't want to be like a conspiracy theorist, but I think, and I don't think a conspiracy is necessary. I think it's just human nature to not want to think about that stuff and to just say, you know what? It probably won't happen to me. I think it'll be, I'll probably be fine. Cause that's what I thought too. I mean, we all think that, but then once sure. you have something like for me, it was cancer, you know, the danger is of course to say, oh, I'm, you know, all of a sudden to think everything is going to go wrong, which is also a, was a sort of a trauma response that I had kind of like PTSD after cancer becoming a hypochondriac and, and all of that. But after a while, I think I'm hoping that I've come back to somewhere like the center where I just want to be honest about the fact that I know very, very well that bad things can happen to me and it's not my fault. And so there, because meaningless, you know, because things happen for no reason, uh, that's what I believe anyway, that, that bad luck can happen. And, you know, I know people believe in karma or different explanations for things, but my personal belief is that when something bad happens to you, it can just be from bad luck. And it doesn't mean that you were a bad person or that you could have done anything to avert it happening. And so therefore, if that's the case, then it's like, oh, wow. Okay. We actually might need to try to take whatever measures we can. If it's like, you know, this thing can happen to anyone. It's not just happening to, I mean, there's a lot of parallels here with other illnesses that have happened where people have said, well, this is only going to affect so-and-so, so I don't need to worry about it. But, you know, COVID can actually affect everybody. And so we all have to take care of each other and and not worry about it, but protect ourselves, you know? So that's why I'm still wearing a mask when I go indoors. I, I actually, you know, because of my personal medical situation, I did a lot of research and I found out a lot of things about air quality. And there are a lot of people who are working The thing that I think will help is if there's a way that we can actually bring hope, but that's not false hope. So in other words, rather than sticking our heads in the sand and to say to people, you know what? Yeah, this is bad, but we actually have something we can do about it. Like not the, we have the tools, but actually it's impossible to get packs of it or not that. I mean, like we really do have the tools. Yeah, We have tools like we can use indoor air quality monitors to say, this room isn't well ventilated. We need to get better ventilation in here. We need to put HEPA filters, just like we cleaned the water, you know, when and there was cholera, right? So then we said, we need to make their, the water be clean. We have to have clean water sources for everyone. We don't always succeed at that here no, in no, the United no. States. But we know, we all agree basically, right? Pretty much that mm -hmm. that's something that humans deserve to have is clean water. Well, now there's this huge movement of people who are saying, you know what, we need to do the same thing for the air, not just outdoors, like in terms of pollution and wildfires and all the rest, but we need to do that for indoor air quality so that we can we can uh, protect each other and ourselves against these, these viruses that are spread in the air. So that's, I think for me, that's my hope anyway, is that the more people start to realize that there is actually something we could do about this, and we could make a huge difference and it would actually help everyone, not just the, the immunocompromised people or, you know, the people like me who are kind of sitting here going like, please, please, I want to participate in society. Can you please wear a mask? 
you know, but just like all of us, then I think that people will kind of get on board and say like, oh yeah, that doesn't sound that hard actually. All we have to do is just decide to do it. Well, we, but it's it's you're a hundred percent right. The water, the clean water kind of stuff. That everybody has to be rowing in the same direction. You can't be fighting. Yeah. You know, I I I just want to say, Carmen, that I know you don't know me very well, but it's like you are a yogi, and what I want to be very clear about is the night I saw you last week, there was an aura over you. And I, the message I got that night was, first of all, I pray for you in my own, I, I, I'm a Tao. I, 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 I cultivate my Taoist, uh, ten, I mean, it's, it's a very spiritual way of life, but it's not a religion. But I just said, I'm going to pray. You are an angel. I am going to pray for you. And I don't want you to ever feel any pain again, whether that's Pollyannish or not. And so I want to be very clear. I, I, as best you can, I want you to know that you're being looked over, that the adversity that you've encountered in your life has obviously made you stronger, but you're going to, you are, you absolutely can move forward in your life and push yourself into uncomfortable situations uh, moving forward. You are completely protected in this life. And I, I want you to know that from the bottom, that's the way I, that was the, my gut reaction uh, to seeing you that night. The, your aura was undeniable. Wow. Well, thank you. Thank you for, for sharing that with me because, you know, that's, that's... I, I think part of it is just, you know, regardless, I mean, you protect yourself. Number one, you can't wait around for other people to, become enlightened uh you just lead through example and uh but that's the truth and um it's not like this is not like some like toxic happy you know thing it, it's more that i believe i very much am inspired by you believe in you and i think that um the only times that i've grown in my life is under the biggest times of diversity and you've already been through that a lot too so um I actually, we, we just cooked through like 70 minutes. You, do you think we could do maybe part two in a couple of weeks or something? I, I just have, I would love to talk to you more. Absolutely. Yes, that would be great. I, right. I would talk to you more about all of this too. We had just, we barely scratched the surface, but I just, I, 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 people actually do care what you say, what you have to say. And, um, I don't want you to start ever question yourself anymore. Uh, it's it's just a really important thing in this time for like when i recognize somebody who is able to get up and be vulnerable and play music at at that level with all those with those cats i mean they were you you guys were all being vulnerable um but just the grace it's just you know all i'm saying is there's an there's an angels are looking out for you carmen don't ever ever don't ever forget that okay thank you all right. And uh, yeah, we'll set up a time to do part two. It was an absolute ball. And, yes. uh, you know, it was worth the wait. So thank you and have, have a good time in, in Miami. Thank you, Jake. And yes, I look forward to speaking again whenever we can. Absolutely. We'll get it together. Okay. Sounds All good. All right. Cheers, my friend. Take care. Bye. Bye.